0: You're listening to Rick Kleffel, The Agony Column Podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.
1: I feel that transrealism is the only valid approach to literature at this point in history. The transrealist writes about immediate perceptions in a fantastic way. Any literature which is not about actual reality is weak and enervated. But the genre of straight realism is all burnt out. Who needs more straight novels? The tools of fantasy and SF offer a means to thicken and intensify realistic fiction. By using fantastic devices, it is actually possible to manipulate subtext. The familiar tools of science fiction, time travel, anti-gravity, alternate worlds, telepathy, and so on, are in fact symbolic of archetypal modes of perception. Time travel is memory. Flight is enlightenment. Alternate worlds symbolize the great variety of individual worldviews and telepathy stands for the ability to communicate fully.
0: Rudy Rucker is the author of science fiction novels that include software, wetware, freeware, realware, Freck and the Elixir, and space-time donuts. His nonfiction includes Saucer Wisdom and The Life Box, The Seashell, and The Soul. He's considered one of the original cyberpunks, and Tales of Houdini was his story in the groundbreaking cyberpunk anthology Mirror Shades. He's the editor of Flurb a webzine of astonishing tales. His new novel from Tor Books is The Mathematicians in Love, and his new short story collection from Thunder's Mouth Press is Mad Professor. Welcome to the program, Rudy. It's nice to be here, Rick. Rudy, let's talk about literary movements... And literary trends in respect to your work as a cyberpunk. Tell us a little bit about the beginning of cyberpunk because it really was a literary movement. It wasn't a literary trend, was it?
1: No, it was a movement. It was uh, well. Initially, I was alone. It was. Uh, I started writing science fiction about 1978, and I wasn't even really aware of the new wave in England. I just felt that. Science fiction used to be interesting when I was younger and it didn't seem like it was interesting anymore. It was sort of something that happened a little bit like when rock and roll was eaten by disco. So I I wanted to write science fiction that that appealed to me that was about real people doing sort of 60s kinds of things, you know, rock and roll, drugs, sex, which I I wasn't really seeing very much in the commercial science fiction. And then... uh, I published two books, software and spacetime donuts, and then I got uh, a letter from Bruce Sterling, who was uh, he was living in Austin, Texas then, and he had re- reviewed my books, and they were in fact the first good reviews I think they'd gotten, and they were in a free newspaper in Austin, and uh, then he he started sending me this uh, zine he was doing called Cheap Truth, and about this idea of cyberpunk. William Gibson was starting to write stories then, and I I loved them. They were right up my alley. John Shirley was becoming active then, too, writing stories and novels. I had always wanted to be in a literary movement. Growing up, I I really admired the Beatniks, and I, I liked that idea of doing the same type of work with some other people and doing something somewhat revolutionary. And then I got to meet all the guys, uh, I think we first met at Bruce Sterling's house. We all went down to uh, Austin there having some kind of science fiction convention there with a special panel on cyberpunk and uh, Though Gibson wasn't there uh, but I got to meet him too and uh, we all really hit it off and liked each other and uh, over the years I've collaborated on stories with Sterling and Shirley a couple of times and have almost collaborated on something with Gibson but he did give me some ideas. It's uh it was nice to to be to, to be have that feeling that you were a
0: part of a movement. Yeah. What do you think happened to cyberpunk as the movement, you know, gained notice? Well,
1: in some sense, I mean, we four are still writing you could still call it cyberpunk if you wanted to. It's still near future. And one of the key notions in cyberpunk, I think, was the idea of That humans are becoming more like machines and machines are becoming more like humans. And that uh, was a somewhat less obvious idea in the 1980s than it is now. What then happened, it did pick up uh, a sort of cultural cachet. And, for instance, Blade Runner was sort of a, I would call that the, that and the Terminator. I would call those the two quintessential cyberpunk movies. And it sort of acquired this idea of being noir and rainy streets colored electric lights reflecting on them which uh, and Gibson does that a lot. Um, my work is not necessarily always so noir. I'm maybe more of a California cyberpunk. I I like to be out in the sun on the beach having surfing with robots and things. And then it, it caught on in other ways. There was a uh, there was this cool magazine called Mondo 2000 that was published in Berkeley and they were they were some really Funny characters who worked there, and they actually didn't know anything about computers at all. Their, their idea of of using computers was to uh, like to take drugs and imagine they're having telepathic contact with people. That was their, their idea of the web, but uh, low tech. But uh, I got involved with them and I helped them edit this book called the Mondo Two Thousand User's Guide to the New Edge, and that was uh, actually that that made the cover of Time magazine. Uh, That was sort of maybe, at least for me, the high point of cyberpunk, where I was involved in a book that was on the cover of Time, and it was the cyberpunk issue of Time magazine.
0: One of the things you talk about is that understanding humans as machines, that's something that's happened. That understanding perception has become a lot more common recently with a lot of the understandings of science and neuroscience. We're understanding humans at a much deeper and more mechanical level now, aren't we?
1: Yes, I think that's the case. There's still a very large residue of mystery. My day job for the last 20 years was teaching computer science at San Jose State University here in Silicon Valley. And one of the courses I would teach was artificial intelligence. And it's sort of like uh, the Wizard of Oz. You look behind the curtain and (laughs) there's just some really rather cheap magic tricks the science of artificial intelligence is, is really very primitive now, is the point I want to make. It's really There's some things we can do. We can do a little voice recognition. We can do uh, you know, you can, uh, robots that can move around reasonably well. But it's, it's essentially just a whole bunch of patched together special routines and special tricks. And we don't have really any overview about how to really make an intelligent machine. So in, in some sense, there's still a lot of mystery.
0: One of the things that, that uh, always stuck with me was um, something out of a Stanislaw Lem article where he purported to be describing the military systems of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he described was, was what he called synsects, synthetic insects. Mm-hmm. And what he said that I thought that was really interesting was that after a while— he, we gave up our quest for artificial intelligence because it's not always that helpful to be intelligent. And mm-hmm. what he we went after was artificial instinct. Mm-hmm. <clears> mm-hmm. Because the instinct appeared, as he says, millions of years earlier, mm-hmm. and is perfectly good enough to get a wasp from one side of the country to the other. That's what a truck driver does. Mm-hmm. Hey, you're done. Mm-hmm. And, and we're actually starting to see some of that now too, aren't we? Yes. Uh,
1: one One thing that I think would be really great would be to be able to create little machines that can fly as well as insects. You mentioned that example. I, I, sometimes in a couple of my novels, I've had this idea of there being dragonflies. I, I have this image of something about the size of a dragonfly, and there's a little camera on the on its head. And we know we can make cameras very small now with with uh, you know CCD chips to to pick them up like TV cameras. And then it would be nice if. In basically every town in the country, there was sort of this rack of these things. And you could go online and rent one of the dragonflies for an hour. And then you could fly around and look at stuff. And that would be... When you want to go somewhere, you can never really figure out what it's going to look like because you just see the sort of brochure-type photos that that are online. and It would be nice to be able to do that. Then, of course... Well, it would bring up all sorts of privacy issues. You Uh,
0: better patent that idea. That sounds like somebody's going to do that real soon.
1: (laughs) Well, I've published it in a science fiction novel. uh, But patenting is, I think, I'm happy just to be a science fiction writer.
0: Let's talk about your science fiction. In the introduction to your short story collection, Mad Professor, you give... You go into lecture mode immediately and give your readers four different aspects of your short stories, of your fiction in general, that you feel are important. And the first thing you mention is thought experiments. So tell us, what is a thought experiment as a philosophical device and as a literary device? And where do they meet? Where do they differ? Okay. Um,
1: Yeah, I take that word actually, as you may know, from Albert Einstein liked to talk about Gedanken experiment. And he had this... Idea for A lot of his ideas about special and general relativity came from thought experiments. Like he would say, what if I could run as fast as a ray of light? Uh, And then what would the light beam look like if I was moving as fast as it was? And then that led him to realize that actually he couldn't run that fast. And uh, so a thought experiment, it's you set up a science fictional world and you put something different in there. Like a thought experiment I'm currently involved in is – what if every object in the world became conscious somehow they're equipped with memory and there's this idea that I picked up from Stephen Wolfram that being able to do complicated computation is actually a rather ubiquitous property of nature a leaf blowing in the wind or water in a glass it's computationally really as rich as a uh, a pc anyway so but then I can't quite. I get stuck. Then I say, "What if objects were conscious?" And then what? And then then I'm stuck. It's hard to 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 think further than that because it's such an unusual, odd idea. And that's where I say, "Okay, I'm going to write a science fiction novel where this has happened." And so by going in and building up this whole environment, where people in there reacting to these objects, and then events are happening, and you're basically setting this this huge sort of simulation in motion with with these things in it. And then I'll discover things that I wouldn't have thought of otherwise. So that's generally a lot of my science fiction. I'll say, or what if, what if I could travel farther than infinity? Or what if I could fly? Or what if, what if telepathy were real? And these things, you say you, you can quickly get a short answer. But then you, you say, I want to simulate it and see what this whole world is like. And that's your thought experiment
0: thought experiments are are interesting as literature how useful are they at predicting the future and how useful do you think is science fiction at predicting the future
1: well i think science fiction it's it's sort of a laboratory as i say it's uh in general when we have like in mathematics we have some axioms and then you say well what follows from these axioms and you sort of have to do these very sustained effort to draw out these these long, complicated consequences. And in physics, we have some laws of nature and then what follows from them. Again, it it takes a lot of work. So in science fiction, when we're doing a thought experiment, we're imagining some sort of situation. uh, And then we're we're performing this kind of sustained simulation. So whether or not we make accurate predictions of the future, um, now and then you get a lucky hit. Sometimes you'll, you'll, you'll see something coming that is obvious to you as a science fiction writer that might not be obvious to the, the average person. I would say in many ways when you're doing science fiction, it's not so much that your, your desire is really to predict the future. It's more to understand what's happening right now because that in itself is something that tends to be veiled from us. It's only when you look back in time can you see what was going on.
0: One thing you mentioned in your introduction is that inspired narration is a more powerful tool than logical analysis. Mm-hmm. So with your thought experiments, science fiction novels as thought experiments, it sounds to me as if you're taking the scientific aspect of creating the laboratory of the thought experiment, the premise, mm-hmm. and then subjecting it to the uh, methods, literary methods of, say, the beat poets mm-hmm. who inspired you. Is that, is that a good well, yeah.
1: There's as a, I got my PhD in mathematical logic, so I, I'm very aware of the limitations of what logic can do. Uh, sometimes we, you might imagine, well, you could just turn this, turn this crank, and put something into a logical system, and you'll get all the answers out. And the the fact is that often you might be turning that crank for a trillion years before you get to an interesting answer. I mean, maybe logic will get there, but it takes a long time, and that's where when we do s- let our creative side loose uh, our sort of more dreaming uh, imaginative side there's a there's a chance of, of shortcutting these very tedious logical processes and uh, focusing also on humanity and emotions, which are, is something that is really the core of, of what
0: makes a novel interesting one thing that that interests me is a subject that's called futurology, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering, how would you describe futurology? Is it different than science fiction? It's, I've never been really clear on that, so here's well, the expert.
1: Yeah, I, I've I've hung around a little bit with some futurologists. futurologists uh, actually, Bruce Sterling often gets futurology gigs. He, there's a group called the Global Business <laughs> Network, and they will go to a business and help them do scenarios about what might happen uh, to the the things that they're interested in in the next 10 years or even even 20 years. And uh, it's not terribly different from science fiction. I guess it tends to be more grasping, more humorless, less interesting, and more bogus. But other than that, (laughs) (laughs) futurology is a lot like science fiction.
0: I'd like to talk to you about one of your... Novels, maybe nonfiction, depends how you look at it as futurology. That's Saucer Wisdom. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about your concept behind that. Is it a novel? Is it nonfiction? How uh, do you feel about it?
1: I think it would be best to market Saucer Wisdom as a novel. Uh, the the Tor books, w- we made the decision to market as nonfiction, uh, which I think the book might have done better if it had been marketed as a novel. Because it is, it's a very odd kind of novel. It's almost like a literary experiment. And the book arose in a very strange way. Uh, It was almost the year 2000, and there was this millennial kind of fever, and people really wanted to know what's happening in the future, but everybody was very anxious. I had a friend, Mark Frauenfelder, who now founded Boing Boing, but at that time he was working for Wired, and they had a Wired magazine, and they had a line of books and he suggested I do a book uh, making predictions about the future. And so I had uh, maybe 50, 50 little predictions that I had. And then he said, well, it would be kind of nice if there's a thread explaining how you found out these predictions. And then I said, okay, I've got it. I I know a guy called Frank Shook, and he's been abducted by UFOs many times, and the UFOs have taken him into the future. And he's seen it, and I'm just reporting what he told me. And then... Uh, I sort of got carried away with that, and I did this sort of Edgar Allan Poe thing of insisting that Frank Shook was real. And then as I was working on the book, Frank Shook took on more life and actually became like a novel because then Frank Shook comes to my house. He doesn't think he's getting enough money, and he steals my typewriter, and then I have to go hunt him down in Santa Cruz. And, and
0: <laughs> it, here we are.
1: Yeah. So it's uh It is a series of prognostications, but it it is threaded together by this story. One of the characters is Frank Shook, and the other character is Rudy Rucker.
0: And this would be certainly an example of this genre of fiction that you call transreal fiction. Exactly. We'll get back to transreal fiction, but I want to get to these other four aspects of all your fiction. Tell us a little bit about what you call power chords. I love this idea. It's a really great idea.
1: Well, that's... There's, uh, well, in sci- the things that you love about science fiction, there's certain things that you just see them and you're like, yeah, that's science fiction. The attack of the giant ants, the arrival of the time machine, the UFO with the aliens coming out, the 100-foot-tall woman, the intelligent slime mold, the ray gun. These things, you're just, yeah, that's science fiction. And I, I, and I, I like writing about those things, and they haven't really been exhausted, I don't think. And I call them power chords because in the way there's certain kinds of things that you'll hear, like ACDC or the Ramones or Keith Richards or Rant's do on the guitar, and you just hear this, you say, Yeah, that's you know, this is rock and roll. This is the real thing. And there's uh So I like to I like to use that stuff in my science fiction. And I don't feel shy. Some people get a little effete and they say, Oh, well this is corny, this is B movie, I can't have a flying saucer, you know, but why not? It's uh, and at a deeper level I would also say you can basically pick any power cord and it turns out usually it's the reason it appeals to us it's some sort of archetype that relates to something in our in our consciousness
0: as you mentioned uh time travel being analogous to memory
1: exactly time travel is like memory and telepathy is the, the fantasy that at some time somebody might actually
0: understand what you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to talk to you about a concept that I think is really key to understanding a lot of your fiction, especially your new novel, uh, "Mathematicians in Love." This is the concept of the gnarl. Mm-hmm. Tell us what is the gnarl and what is gnarly. Well,
1: that's that's a word I became fond of when I moved to California in 1986, and uh, I just it just cracked me up. I, I, I think I actually heard some surfers saying that word you know the waves are gnarly or that food is gnarly or she's a gnarly person using it in all sorts of ways and then uh the the, the dictionary meaning of gnarl would be when you have this sort of excrescence on a tree this lump where it's sort of very twisty sorts of wood and uh so i, I like the idea of uh of things that are i i got into computer graphics when i came to california and uh I like the Mandelbrot set and cellular automata, and things where you would get these very extremely complex and twisty patterns in computer graphics. And I came to think of those as gnarly patterns. And then uh, as I studied the theory of computation some more, and again, uh, I was greatly influenced by the work of Stephen Wolfram. And he distinguished between different kinds of computation. or natural process, something that might either just sort of die out and not get anywhere, or it might be periodic, or it might be completely, completely like radiostatic, or, or TV snow, just completely random. And then, but there's this sort of interface zone between something that's periodic and something that's just blown out and random, and that's the gnarly zone. It's where you have patterns, but they're patterns that don't repeat. They're intricate. They're complicated. And uh, you can make a pretty good case that that's the zone of life. All, all living things are, are behaving in a gnarly fashion. They're, they have some periodicity, but it's, it's, it's kind of a, not a predictable periodicity. You don't sleep the exact same number of minutes every night. You know, your breaths are slightly different. Nothing is quite perfectly periodic. But they, it's not. on the other hand, it's not like you're just a pile of goo. So um, I like this idea of gnarly. And then I also like the cultural association, gnarly dude, you know, that that cracks me up. So uh, even my sort of personal slogan, if you had to put one thing on my gravestone, it would probably be,
0: seek the gnarl." One of the things about the gnarl is, you bring this up in Lifebox. And and so tell us, what is a Lifebox? I think this is an interesting concept, but I'm... Well,
1: that's a, a science fictional concept I've written about. Uh, in some of my short stories, and I think in some of my novels as well. And it's an idea that is just about here. You can already, in fact, uh, you can get like a cell phone and you can record, take lots of pictures with it. You can record things you care about. You could put links there. You could put text in there. And you could get a lot of information about yourself into this sort of handheld device. And people, uh, it's often the case that when someone retires or when they turn 70, they want to write a memoir, and then that's when people discover that writing is difficult. But an, an easy way they could do this would be if they had something sort of like a an MP3 player or a cell phone, and it would ask you questions. You'd talk to it. It would record what you said. And then uh, it would have built into it a an interface, a voice-recognizing interface, so If you talked to it, you said, well, tell me about your first car, then it would dig through its database and it would play back a story of the the Lifebox owner talking about his first car. And you could interrupt him and ask more questions. And it would become, in the end, like having a conversation with someone. And this, I think this technology is really almost here. It will be very common in about 10 years. Whether the life box can wake up and do original thought, of course, that's the hard part. We can make something that that emulates somebody. You basically just have this enormous enormous database of everything they've said or everything they've written. In a way, you could say that my website is my life box, because pretty much there's a huge amount of data that I've put up there, photographs and things that I've written, and like my blog is searchable because you can. there's a little box where you can type in some, some word and then it'll give you all my blog entries mentioning that word. And sort of, in a way, it's almost at the point where you, using it would be a little bit like having a conversation with me. Now, the, my book, The Lifebox, the Seashell, and the Soul, that title, it's a, a, what you'd call a dialectic triad. Because the Lifebox idea is maybe I can get my personality and crush it into this digital database And the soul is the idea, that's our feeling that there's something we have that's more than a machine. There's something in me, there's this inner light, there's this glowing consciousness inside me. So I'm not really a life box. And then the synthesis between these two is this idea of a seashell. And there's a particular kind of seashell that Stephen Wolfram talks about. It's the South Pacific textile cone shell, cone shell, and it has these patterns on it that are very good examples of gnarly patterns occurring in nature. They're very intricate, but they're not repetitive. The point that I'm getting at in this book is suppose that you took a life box and animated it by giving it a program that was gnarly in its operation, that would uh, not be periodic, but on the other hand wouldn't be confusingly random. It's possible that that could produce behavior that seemed like a living being. So In that sense, the seashell is the synthesis between the life box and the soul.
0: This is reminiscent of something you say about writers and novels, in that you quote Burroughs about this, that uh, a novelist has to create a world, and then when they create that world, they have to walk around and explore it, and they might find that it has stuff that they didn't intend to be there. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about this and how that informs your own writing. Writing is my favorite thing to do because
1: I think maybe I find it frustrating in the real world how little control I have over things, particularly on the political front. Though, of course, if I'm doing something like walking on the beach, that's maybe more fun than writing because it's it's beautiful. You're soaking up nature. So I'm I'm not like totally wanting to be in my room all the time. But I do like to get into the world of my novels because it's a, it's fun. It's like dreaming while I'm awake because I'm I see what I'm writing about. I have visual images of everything and I'm essentially imagining it and then describing it. Sometimes in the evening I find it rather than reading a book I would rather just lie there with my laptop and work on the next scene in my book because then it it's almost relaxing for me. I'm you know I'm watching something that I like to see and seeing how it unfolds. And it is nice if it surprises me a little bit because, again, I, I want the the novel to be gnarly in the computational sense that I don't want it to be predictable. Certainly, it's a good idea to have a novel outline, to have an outline of your novel so you know what you're doing. But it's also the case that it's okay if then things happen that weren't in the outline because you sort of want that to happen. Because if, if nothing unexpected happened, then the book would probably be kind of dull and... Uh, There are books like that, and those aren't books that I like to read. I like books where where unexpected things can happen. If I get a good enough model of the characters, they'll sometimes say things that actually strike me as funny and that that seem almost unexpected to me. It might even make me laugh. Uh, A type of input, I like to incorporate sort of when a novel is going well, I begin to feel sometimes that the world is helping me because I will go outside and I will see just the kind of person I need to see or just the, the physical object that I need to see. Like I'll, I'll, I'll need some sort of magical science fiction device, and I'll go outside and I'll just find something on the sidewalk that just looks like just that right kind of thing, like a crystal or a twisted piece of wood, and then I'll bring it home and put it on my desk, and it goes into the novel. So that's
0: uh, I like that. You were talking about your characters making you laugh, and one of the things that's interesting about your work is you've got a great sense of humor, but you don't exactly tell jokes. Well, yeah, that's it.
1: Uh, I do, I sort of, I'm almost congenitally unable to write something that people don't think is funny. And even though I usually, sometimes I'll even not want to be funny, and then I find this when I speak to groups of people too. I, I think I'm, I'm being serious, and then everybody starts laughing. And uh, I think it's just because I have such a such an unusual way of looking at things, and then people are surprised. And when you're surprised about something, then it, it makes you laugh. But I, I do like to have my my novels be be amusing and funny. That's something. When when you point out something weird about society, there's this sort of release of tension. It's like you've, you've named the elephant in the living room. There's this sort of, oh, now we can laugh because we're not, we're not frightened. So th- that's one type of humor. And the other is to have characters that are just so out of it and, and bizarre that you kind of have to laugh at the way they act. And having been a mathematician and a science fiction writer and a computer programmer, I've, I've hung around with plenty of, of very bizarre people. There's, and uh, if you just describe them exactly as they are, it, it seems incredibly funny
0: sometimes. Let's talk about transrealism and, and your latest novel, which is, a, a I think, a perfect example of transrealism. Uh, it's called Mathematicians in Love, and it's set in Berkeley. No, it's set in Humlock, <laughs> which I, 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 what a great. <laughs> yeah, the British empiricists. Yeah. The British empiricists. Transreal fiction is this idea of writing something that's both grittily realistic, but infused with bits of com- stuff that's completely fantastic. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about, how, how, when did you come up with this idea of the transreal?
1: It was pretty early in my career. Well, really, my first novel, Space Time Donuts, was transreal. It was sort of like my experience of going to graduate school. And then my novel, White Light, that was even more transreal. It was about <clears throat> being a a teacher at a small college in upstate New York. In that novel, I leave my body and I go uh, beyond infinity to this place where infinity is real, and that was a sort of an objective correlative for two things. Uh, one was uh, I'd had one or two psychedelic experiences where I felt like I had, you know, seen something beyond ordinary reality, and also as a practicing practicing mathematician, I was regularly kind of leaving the world and going into this realm of infinite sets. A way to make that interesting to write about is to have it actually physically happen to a person. And so in Mathematicians in Love, I'm also I'm kind of drawing back on some of my experiences as a graduate student in mathematics. But I have this, this guy, he's a student at Berkeley, or Humlock, as I call it, because it sort of starts out in a different parallel world from ours and ends up at the very end, they end up in our world. I like observing. I, I'm I feel fortunate to live in 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 an interesting part of the world. I mean, it's Silicon Valley is interesting. California is interesting. San Francisco and Berkeley are interesting. Santa Cruz, and I like seeing these uh these colorful, interesting people, and then trying to capture some of what they're like into my fiction.
0: One thing you said that. Uh that what started you off was somebody describing a uh, a scanner darkly which is a, a science fiction novel by Philip K Dick as a transcendental biography that's right a transcendental autobiography autobiography
1: and in a way that's that's what it was because that book it's about it's about a period when he was living in some whipped little house uh i think it was in San Rafael i can't remember and uh he was taking a lot of a lot of speed, and these fairly rough street-type people were living in his house with him. And Scanner Darkly, it's uh, these people, they're addicted to something called Substance D. And uh, that book, to me, that that's an example of a book that I, I found very funny. It made me laugh a lot when I first read it, because the characters were they're like completely stoned out and hopeless, and in a way, it's depressing. But the, the, their view of reality is so skewed and odd. It's, and Phil Dick had a very, a very deft touch with with reporting, just describing in a flat way the way people talk and the way California people talk is. Uh, he he was very good at capturing that cadence, and uh, it was it was really a nice book. And yeah, when I first read that book, on the back there was a blurb from somebody, I can't remember who, uh, maybe Norman Spinrad, and he said it was uh, a type of transcendental autobiography. And that struck me, well, loving the beats as I did, I always sort of really wanted to write novels about myself, like Jack Kerouac uh, or William Burroughs, maybe less so Burroughs. But Burroughs' book, Junkie, was about himself and, of course, On the Road – but then I thought, well, I can't just do that again. And also, my life actually isn't that exciting compared to these guys. I'm I'm a professor, I'm married, I have children. But then I thought, what if I add science fiction to this? So what if I write about my life and real people and with real, the real politics, but then use science fiction for the excitement?
0: And that's sort of where I got the idea. Your new novel, Mathematicians in Love, it has cephalopods in it. You've got jellyfish in it. These are very Lovecraftian touches, and I'm wondering if the work of H.P. Lovecraft has, has had much influence on your work, because in many ways he had that kind of trans-real glow to his work. You'd look at, the, you'd look at reality and realize there was something, in his case, very hideous hidden behind it.
1: Well, that's true, yeah. I had never thought of it that way, but uh, yeah, he does write about ordinary life, and then there's something really bizarre lurking under it. And in a way, Edgar Allan Poe sometimes does that too. But Lovecraft, I guess maybe my favorite work of his is At the Mountains of Madness, and they're in Antarctica, and they find this cave, and there's these ruins left by these, these creatures that looked like giant sea cucumbers. He always liked, he calls them radiolarians, but uh, echinoderms, starfish, sea cucumbers. So I've always liked having those kinds of creatures, and... Uh, there's something about when you go to the invertebrate kingdom, you don't have this brotherly sense that you feel towards a dog, you know, <laughs> when, you, <laughs> when you talk about a, a sea cucumber or a jellyfish. And uh, so they're, they're well-suited for being aliens, I think.
0: Uh, I'd like to ask you, what other authors do you think now who are working in the realm of, of transrealism, either consciously or unconsciously?
1: Well, certainly Philip K. Dick was doing it, but he's not around anymore. In in science fiction writing, um, maybe Cory Doctorow to some extent is doing that. He he likes to write about sort of near future things about people like himself, and then something unusual happens to them. My friend John Shirley is in a way a transrealist. He writes about horrific things happening to, to people very much like himself. He's a maybe less
0: optimistic transrealist than I am. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk now about mathematicians in love. This is based on your experiences as a grad student, as you say, but it's also based on uh, something I think that uh, a notion out of your tract on transrealism is that uh, consensus reality is a form of mind control. And I really like this, this idea. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things about mathematicians in love It doesn't look like it, and it's probably the most political novel that I've ever seen that involved giant flying squid creatures. Mm -hmm. And tell us a little bit about the political aspects behind this and how this consensus reality versus the trans real reality.
1: Well, there was a couple of elements in Mathematicians in Love. One thing that I sort of got on the wave just as it was growing was this idea of video blogging, which uh, when I wrote the novel, I guess a year and a half ago, or 2 years ago, that was really just sort of a gleam in in the eyes of the nerds out there. And now we've got YouTube, which uh everybody's watching and people everybody's posting videos of themselves. So but I had this idea that there could be that would be something that sort of would liberate us from the media if people everybody was making their own TV channels. The real political element in the book, it has to do with the our ongoing, I mean I think politically we're in very dark times in the United States. I don't think – I used to say things were worse under Reagan or Nixon, but I think the the, the years under – these six years under George Bush have been a real low point in our nation's history. And uh, it's come to the point where as a as an artist, I feel it's up to me to speak up and do what I can if not to bring down the government which would be too much to hope but uh at least to provide succor and comfort uh to my fellow intellectuals that feel oppressed by 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 the the goons that we have running the country so i sort of got had this idea i have this evil president in the book called joe dokes and uh and he uh He has this campaign he's running. His party's the Heritagist Party, and he has this 100% Heritagist campaign, which is really quite close to what we were hearing from the Republicans.
0: Sure, that was the Tom DeLay idea, was permanent majority for the Republicans.
1: Right, and it wasn't enough that they take over 80% of the Congress. They had to have 100%, and then they were going to vote out all of the judges, because impeach all the Democrat judges, and... uh, 100%, 100% hundred percent hundred percent heritagism. and uh so I sort of i had fun having this this Joe dokes making a speech about that, and then my characters through means i won't I won't go into in detail will basically give a really successful large heavy metal punk rock concert in in the uh, <laughs> in the baseball stadium in san Francisco and they're distributing these devices that let people see what's actually going to happen in the future if they, if a hundred percent heritageism succeeds, and what people are seeing is, you know, dreadful, <laughs> sort of like what we're seeing on the news every night, and uh, so suddenly he manages to bring down the government, and so that was that was very gratifying for me. Uh,
0: One of the things that this novel does, I'd like you to to first, I'd like you to tell us what the standard. Give us your summary of the standard science fiction idea of notion of what's called this technological singularity, Mm -hmm. which is?
1: Suppose we could build computers that were as intelligent as ourselves. And if you could get computers up to that level, then you could go ahead and put in double their memory, get chips that are twice as fast. And you'd have something that perhaps would be maybe not twice as intelligent as a person, but maybe a little bit better. And then this new machine could itself set to work designing a better machine, and you might have this sort of chain reaction, this sort of explosive growth in machine intelligence so that it could happen in a a very short period of time that artificial intelligence could could reach unprecedented levels.
0: And and this is uh, something we've actually, uh, last summer I attended something called the Singularity Symposium. Yes. Over at Stanford. That's, I think I went to that too. Uh, it, was, it was pretty interesting. But one of the things I think you do really well in this book is come up with a, different, a very different spin on the singularity. And so tell us a little bit about what you call paracomputing. I think that you referred to this earlier, and I really oh, yeah. like this idea. Well, yeah. I think,
1: to s- I think when people talk about the singularity these days, I think they're a little too fixated on digital computers. It's almost as if you had some people in the 19th century saying pretty soon there's going to be this really, really good watch. And that's going to, that's going to change everything. <laughs> 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 I think it's a safe bet that in 100, 200 years, we're not going to be using digital computers. We're going to be doing something else. This, again, comes from my interest in uh, Stephen Wolfram's New Kind of Science, this idea that natural processes can be thought of as computations. In that sense, you could say, well, maybe instead of making better digital computers, we could harness the computational power that's in nature. We could get something like a vibrating membrane and maybe get that to be doing, you know, it's incredibly profound computations for us. Sometimes people call this non-traditional forms of computation. I think there's a journal of non-traditional computation now. Uh, I think they asked me to be, do something for them, but as I say, these days I just want to write science fiction. But um, the thing is, nature, everything's happening in parallel. It's very rich. So there could be this idea. And what happens in mathematicians in love, they find a way to basically take this sort of vibrating membrane and use it to simulate the world in such a way that they become able to predict the future. And that's uh, then we look at, at some of the things that play out there. Of course, the heritagists want to get control of it and use it to control the mass media, to control public opinion. They have been very good at doing this. And then my characters want to try to use it for more a liberating force. And they actually managed to do that.
0: And one of the things that I think is real interesting is that as opposed to the singularity seen as computational, where the intelligence that it creates are so godlike that we can no longer comprehend them, you've got in here, in Mathematicians in Love, you have a vision of the singularity as if everybody could understand and look at the future, there's so many possible predictions of the future, all of a sudden the future itself sort of dissolves in a kind of feedback loop. So it's, in a sense, time travel almost as a form of the singularity.
1: Well, there's a, a lot of interesting paradoxes that come up if we become able to predict the future because then then pretty much the stock market is going to have to close down because er- the lottery's not going to work because everybody's going
0: to buy the winning number. And uh, so a, a lot of things like that are going to change. You also have a very interesting notion of docile worlds and non-docile worlds. So tell us a little bit about what you mean by that. I like that idea.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's a kind of notion that people wouldn't have even thought of about 10, 10 or 15 years ago. and. The idea has to do with if we think of the world as being like a computation, then what we believe to be true about our world is that the computation is so gnarly, so complicated that there's no shortcut for for predicting it. So in other words, in my novel, they are able to predict the future, but that's only because they're not in our world. They're in a parallel world, what I call a docile world. And I would maintain that in our world, no matter how good a computer you had, um, And no matter how much you knew about the present, you still wouldn't be able to make a prediction uh, that went out more than about 10 minutes, uh, a really accurate prediction. And the reason is simply uh, because there's no shortcuts. There's a, a... Sometimes we speak of incompressible computations or irreducible computations. Uh, what's happening in, in reality, what's going on in your head, for instance. You say, well, why can't I predict what mood I'll be in when I wake up tomorrow morning? And The thing is, the only way you can get from here to tomorrow is to but live through the intervening hours. And the whole time, your brain is sort of computing away at its maximum possible rate. And there's not like you can take those 12 hours of computation and find some shortcut for predicting what the result's going to be. And that's, in a way, it's that's not that surprising a notion, but it's something that we just, we never thought that way about 10 years ago. It just wasn't kind of a mode of thinking that would occur to us. Because if you think of it, there's only so many shortcuts that there could be. There's like a shortcut has some simple rule. There's only so many simple rules. And it stands to reason that most of the time, what you're doing is not going to be obeying any, any one given simple rule. And uh, so in that sense, our world is not docile. It's fierce. It's uh, gnarly. It's not predictable. And uh, it's, that's what makes life interesting. And that's, uh, that's the kind of novel that I like to write as well.
0: One thing that I really liked about Mathematicians in Love is the way it transformed the way I saw the world when I was reading it. And this is because of this notion that that you just were talking about, that math underlies everything, at the core of everything. There's some like somebody is writing an equation that describes the entire world. And so one of the experiences, I think, that people who read this novel have was I was sitting reading it, and I looked out. I was in a restaurant, and I looked out, and I saw a row of trees, and it was windy, and the leaves were were just changing. They were different colors, and they were just flashing at me in, in... uh, I'm met in a pattern, but it was a very complex pattern. And, and my thought was, boy, somebody could write an equation to describe what those leaves are doing. Or more importantly, those leaves could be used to compute something, which is what you're kind yes. of getting at in this in this book, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I really, I very much enjoy looking at at the wind moving trees around. That's what, I'm, And I love looking at the ocean and clouds. Clouds, I always think, if there's only one place in the world where you could see clouds, like people, everybody would be flocking there. I think we, we don't pay enough. Clouds are so fascinating. and We just take them for granted. We don't even look at them. But uh, I, I'm always happy if, that's one thing in, in an environment like a mall, it's hard to find any example of what I call gnarl, natural gnarl, where you see some sort of, like a, a a leaf waving in the wind, or a, a fire flame, or a, some flowing water. Uh, we, it's we often box ourselves up into these rooms where, if you really need to sing gnarly, you can always get out your handkerchief and sort of wave it around and, and look at the undulations of the fabric. But yeah, all these when you see something like the leaves on the tree, th- that's a good example where, in a way, there's there's some, maybe a simple equation underlying it. There's the like the laws of a fluid flow, and we've got a certain amount of air and a certain number of leaf positions, but the leaves are they're compound complex pendulums and they begin rocking in these unpredictable ways. And again, un, sometimes this, the distinction that's, that's new and that we didn't used to make is that something can be deterministic, but not predictable. We, we tend to think that they're synonyms, but they're not. Something can be obeying some law of nature But it's not predictable because what it's doing is so complicated that the time it would take you to actually calculate what it's going to do would take longer than the thing actually doing it. So you could compute it, but no faster. You can't
0: compute the world any faster than it's happening. One of the least computable aspects of the world you cover in a short story in Mad Professor... Called Jenna and Me. hmm And I this is a really great story. So why don't you tell us the what the story behind this story?
1: Yeah, this is a story I wrote with my son. His name is also Rudy Rucker. He runs an ISP in San Francisco called monkeybrains.net. For some reason that I could never quite understand, he thought it would be funny or artistic or interesting to make a website about Jenna Bush and her sister. So he had this site called firsttwins.com, dot com, and it even got mentioned on page six of the Post, and he got huge numbers of hits. Since he was running a uh, an ISP, he you know he could afford the. When you have a really popular site, you have to actually pay for the amount of internet usage, but that he was able to you know fold that into his business. But then people could post on there, and you know inevitably somebody posted some sort of threat. So then the Secret Service came to see. See Rudy and you know questioned him about what he's up to and I think they figured out that you know he's he's just a young guy in San Francisco, and there's not nothing much to worry about but then another thing happened was that then the uh there was a a virus a a, a key sniffing virus that started recording everybody's keystrokes, and the guy who had written that virus had an account on rudy's website and his, he had a, I don't know, he had some crazy website name for himself. It's like, I just got fired.com or something like that. And he, you know, amassed about a trillion bytes of secret data that that came in there. And so then the FBI came and they wanted, uh, they wanted Rudy to open up his computers and give him all this data. And uh, in, in the end, I think he had to do that. I, I said to, to Rudy, well, you know, why are you doing this? What is this site about Jenna? You know, maybe I can help you figure out what it is that you're really doing. Let's write a trans real science fiction story about this. So then we wrote this story, Jenna and me. And then what happens in the story is, well, the, it's the usual kind of thing. I mean, Jenna's brain gets eaten by aliens and they're they're trying to drug Chelsea Clinton and Jenna takes the pill instead and... Then they, they bring her brain back with all the recorded cell phone conversations that they have that ended up on his website. And then, then the aliens come and the UFOs. So it was a, a nice power cord science fiction story.
0: We've been speaking with Rudy Rucker. His new novel is Mathematicians in Love. His new short story collection is Mad Professor. He is not mad. He's not even angry. He's just really smart. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Rudy.
1: Thanks a lot, Rick.
0: You're listening to Rick Kleffel, The Agony Column Podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.